in your notebooks, and everybody should have a notebook. We have them over here. If you are planning on attending the class going forward, then please take, take a notebook, take it home with you, and bring it back each week. If you're not sure whether you're going to attend each week, uh, take one and just look through it as we go through it today, but don't take it with you because they're 25 bucks each, as I've, as I've said the last couple weeks. So page 9, and we'll review a little bit uh, where, we, where we left off. You see here at the top the good soil E and D scale. That is the evangelism and discipleship scale. And just underneath that in the solid bar it says uh, horizontal dimension on the understanding and receptivity matrix. So we saw last week that this is showing you that on the right side of the scale, going from the bottom minus 12 to minus 1, you're trying to move someone from less understanding to full understanding. And you're trying to judge as best you can where the person is in their understanding. And these 12 points of understanding are not absolute. There are points of understanding and misunderstanding in between, but it gives you an idea of the kinds of things you want to, you want to look for. And then at the top, going across, you see, again, from minus 12 to minus 1, but it's receptivity. And so you want uh, both of those uh, to be in place, full understanding and full receptivity, so that in the upper right-hand corner, when you have both of them, you've got somebody who repents and trusts Jesus, which is what this class is about. It's evangelism. And the idea is for us to be used as God's instruments to give His message to people with whom we are in, we're in relationship. And we're trying to get those two things to come together, understanding and recept receptivity. So if someone is lacking understanding, if they're not to minus one in their understanding, then what do they need? They need more truth. If they are uh, lacking receptivity, they're not at minus one in receptivity, what do they need? They don't need more truth for that. They need more love. They need more uh, relationship from, from you. So we, as God's instruments, are doing both of those things. In the relationship with an, an individual that we want to see come to Christ, we are loving them, and we are, in the context of that loving relationship, giving them, giving them truth. And then that comes together in them repenting and, and trusting Christ. So the next page then on page 10, and by the way, Bridget, take a note, notebook over there. You are welcome. And I was just saying to everybody, uh, everybody's welcome to a free notebook, one. And then if your dog eats it or something like that, they're $25, 25 So sometime between now and the end of the semester, we're going to, I'm going to single people out who have taken more than one book and, 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 have, not, and have not submitted their $25. And I'm going to refer to them as Achan, if anybody knows that story in the Bible, or uh, Ananias and Sapphira, that one. We could have, we could have that too. Page 10 then, and this is just review from last week, that you've got this relationship and you are trying to cultivate receptivity and also uh, garner understanding on the part of the person that you have that relationship with. But 
Sometimes God in his providence will bring you into a relationship that is almost instantaneous, that you just run into someone and you don't know them, you haven't had a history with them, but you just get an, a door is open for you to, to talk to them. And that is what uh, the upper left-hand corner of page 10 and the graphic there says, initial contact evangelism emphasizes one climactic point. So those happen sometimes. You'll want to look for those. You'll want to, you'll want to pray for those. That's not the norm. The norm is that you have a relationship with, with someone, and that's cultivated over, over time. And so the title of this series is Good Soil because you are cultivating soil. You're being used to, to do that. Plant seed, and then, Lord willing, see that seed uh, sprout in the life of that person. That's the bottom right-hand corner, relational evangelism. That emphasizes the entire process in evangelism. And as I pointed out last week, the main difference between those two, if you look at that di diagonal line going across, for initial contact, the one on the left, notice down toward the bottom in bold, it says share the gospel in its entirety with a challenge for faith response. Well, that happens in initial contact. You can do that fairly early on uh, in some cases because this is a person who is interested, that's why, they're, that's why it came up, that's why they're talking to you about it, and you can, you can give it to them in, in its entirety. Uh, you may never see the person again, or you may. If you do, then you'll do the things that go up the, uh, up the line there. But the sharing of the gospel in, uh, in the evangel relational evangelism takes place toward the end. You see that? So down at the bottom there, on the right-hand side, you're establishing initial contact, you develop a genuine caring friendship, sow gospel seeds, continue to share more, and uh, then give the gospel. That's the, that's the more common way. And well, top of that page, in page 10, you see the two bullet points. They ask the question, in what sense is evangelism a process? In what sense can it be thought of as a single point in time event? So uh, evangelism is indeed a, a process um, that we go through with an individual most of the time with whom we have a relationship and we ask the Lord to use us to move it toward them coming to, to Christ. But evangelism is, does involve a single point uh, in the sense that conversion happens in, in an instant as well. So you have, uh, you have uh, regeneration, the giving of spiritual life to a person at a, at a point in time, and you have the, the process of evangelism, which generally takes time, and so the one happens at the end of a, of a longer process, but sometimes the relationship with the individual in God's providence happens such that you can, uh, you can make that time frame much smaller, sometimes even in one encounter, most of the time, over a longer period of time, okay? So everybody, everybody good with, with that? So that's a major part of what we've seen so far. If you look at page 11, so when is initial contact evangelism most appropriate? That is, like I said, that's when you have these, uh, that's when you have these encounters that from a human standpoint look like chance encounters, 
The truth is there's no such thing in God's world as chance, but God has designed that, but it looks like chance. It just kind of comes up. What are some of the dangers associated with that? Uh, you can, if you don't have a lot of time because you don't have a relationship with this person, then you can have the person, you can call for a faith response and they make a profession, but you didn't really have time to give them enough understanding. So it's one of the, da it's one of the dangers to be aware of in, in that. So that now they've made, a, they've made a profession, but whether it's a genuine profession is, is a bit of a concern. When it can be a bit of a concern. When is relational evangelism most appropriate? That's when you have an existing relationship. You're going to be with this person on a regular basis. You work with them. They're in your family. They're your neighbor, uh, that, that kind of thing. But dangers with that approach. You guys readily acknowledged the danger that I mentioned in the initial contact that maybe you don't have time to give a full presentation. But what about this one? What do you think might be a danger with relational uh, evangelism? Long period of time before you get to. Yes. Yeah, you never tell, you never you never speak up, you know. So you're you're a good Christian person in in front of them, which is what you want to do, and you want to love them and all that. But you are looking for opportunities to speak Christ to to them. Uh, so uh, that's a danger as as well. Now we're going to see, moving forward and starting tonight that we want to bring the person to uh, understanding and look at the things that keep them from that understanding. So if you'll turn the page, you see the solid green there on the far right, just the solid green page, far right, going uh, vertically, it says understanding there. So now this section that we're embarking on is about how, to, how do you bring somebody to under, understanding. So we're going to talk about that tonight and over the next, next few weeks. Before we get into the first portion of helping unbelievers understand the, the gospel, you have the, the chart there again, just before page 12. I say just before page 12 because that page doesn't have a page number, right? You guys see that? So they, they don't make it easy on the people trying to teach this. It's the page before page 12, which does not happen to be page 11, it turns out. But nonetheless... There it is. <laughs> there it is, okay? And we are trying to uh, bring the person to, to understanding. Bring them to, to understanding. So you go down to the, the bottom, the very bottom, and to bring them to understanding, our role right in the middle, so starting in the middle, the white portion, it says tilling evangelism. You guys see that? So as we try to bring them to understanding, uh, it's going to involve modeling love and praying for the person, but then beginning to challenge their core worldview, kindly, lovingly, but deciding where they are in the way they view the world, and then try to plant seeds that help their understanding and move them up the scale. So to bring them to understanding, you till, and then as you make progress in that, you, you plant, and then uh, ultimately you, you reap. Now do you see there with that whole bottom portion where you've got those three things, tilling, planting, and reaping, if you look to the left, the gray and green kind of shaded area there, that there are different shades of those 12 things down at the very bottom. 
it's in one shade and then another and then another. And if you look to the left of those, you got level one, level two, level three. You guys all see that? All right. So there will, we will, in the weeks ahead, have some discussion about each of those levels, the tilling piece, the planting piece, and the, the reaping piece. But for now, we just want you to see that of those 12 things, the first five fit into tilling, the next three are planting, and the final four are, are reaping. All right, now that is the heart of the genius of this whole approach in good soil evangelism. So that's why they give it to you again with its own page, without a page number. Uh, so does everybody think they understand what's on there? We've seen it a few times. All right, so we want to look at helping people to, to understand page 12. And at the top there, it says reasons that unbelievers do not understand the gospel. Something that all believers have in common to the same degree, which would be 100%, is spiritual blindness. So every unbeliever has, has that. That's how we all start out, spiritually blind, according to the Bible. So look at the uh, verse there. Hey, Marcy, how many, how many notebooks is that for you? Say, uh, Amanda, you're, uh, Amanda, is it Amanda? Uh, okay, Amanda gave you up. She gets up, gets you the, and I say, and, and I wasn't going to embarrass Amanda because Amanda's new here, but you, on the other hand, you are a veteran of, you're a, you, you, on the other hand, are a veteran of stealing notebooks and are, <laughs> well, Welcome, Marcy. We are on page, we're on page 12 <laughs> in the notebook. <laughs> and you see the passage there, 2 Corinthians 4. Minds uh, that the God of this age has blinded who do not believe lest the light of the gospel should shine on them. And so that's how we come into the world. We come into the world with a sin nature and Part of the result of that is then that we are, are blind to God's, God's truth. Uh, but thankfully, God is gracious, and He works in the lives of people to bring them to understanding, using us in the process, and that's why we're involved in an evangelism class. So everybody has that in common. And then if you look to the right, you've got Matthew chapter 13 and verse 23. And that... Uh, that chapter, Matthew 13, is where one of the places where Jesus talks about good soil and the effects of different kinds of soil that have on the seed of the gospel. And he says there in Matthew 13, 23, he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it. He who indeed bears fruit and produces some hundredfold, sixty, some thirty. And so this is, Jesus saying, this is uh, good soil. And the seed finds uh, fertile ground, and it gives uh, root and fruit uh, as, a, as a result. And so in the analogy, in the illustration, someone uh, comes to Christ is what Jesus is saying. So when somebody hears God's word and does not understand it, he or she becomes spiritually uh, blind. And um, spiritually vulnerable, I should say, to the deceptive work of Satan, to twist it, 
into a misleading untruth. And so it's important that we do all that we can, all that's humanly possible to present the gospel in such a way that unbelievers, with the help of God's Spirit, can clearly understand it so it makes believable sense to them. So that's what we, uh, as God's evangelists, will try to do. Now look back over to the left side and that next bullet point. Other reasons vary greatly from one person to another. So something everybody has in common is the spiritual blindness. Something that we need to do with everybody is try to bring them to understand it. But then that bullet is saying, but then from there, people are different, and their experiences are different. And so their understanding and their is, going, is going to be different. So there are lots of things that vary. And your uh, graphic there in the bottom half of page 12 shows you, you know, two people, one with a Bible in his hand trying to communicate the truth, and then somebody else trying to receive what's being, what's being said. So here's what goes in those boxes. If you don't have a pen, there are pens uh, over here for you to write in your notebook, except anybody who, for whom this is their second notebook. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to write in this notebook. Yeah, oh, the pens. The pens are a whole other matter. Yeah, I, I told you guys, I think. Okay, yeah, you know. Yeah, you, you've heard before. And are you, you guys have been here long enough that you probably have some pens stashed at your home. And so you would be eligible for Amnesty Sunday as, as well. All right, so helping unbelievers to understand the, uh, the gospel. So what are we, what are we doing to, to help them do that? Well, the first thing is you know, here's your, here's your evangelist and he's trying to give say the meaning of John 3.16. God so loved, can you see that? Okay. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay. Good, good verse to give to somebody if you're trying to, if you're trying to witness to them Christ. Uh, but you, the evangelist, you're thinking about, that's the thought bubble, uh, above the head, the meaning of John 3.16. And as somebody who is a Christ follower, you have an understanding of what that, what that means. So you're thinking about the meaning. You've got that in your head. And then you do your best to try to encode that for the person that you're talking to. You know, translate it in the language that they can understand. So there are, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of things going on there in that verse as background that you might understand in the meaning that's all rattling around in your head. And you're thinking, how do I, how do I translate that? How do I encode that for the person so that they have under, understanding? So you think, about, you think about that, and then you transmit it to them. You tell it to them as, as best you can. Now, so far, so good. You know, we begin with an understanding of the gospel message that we, we want to communicate. We encode that into some transmittable form. And then 
we trans transmit that to the unbeliever in the most appropriate means for the code that we've chosen to embody the, the message, usually in you know, just speaking to them and speaking to them in words, hopefully that they can, they can understand. So, so far, so good. You got those three things. But now you get to the very bottom and you see the line from you to the person that you're trying to uh, see come to Christ. And here's one of the things, in addition to spiritual blindness, one of the things that gets in the way. And that is worldview noise. Worldview noise. And we're going to spend some time over the next few weeks talking about worldview and worldview noise. Because people vary, their experiences vary, their reading varies, their beliefs vary. And so the noise that they have in their worldview is going, to, is going to vary. And that is going to be something that keeps clear communication from happening if it, the noise is not dealt with, if the noise is not removed. So we're going to see how to do that. Worldview noise. So if the gospel recipient's worldview differs from the biblical worldview, the message is going to be somewhat confused by that, that noise. So in any communication process, noise is anything that hinders a clear communication of the message from you to the, the person. So then on their end, if we got the worldview noise and we got the confusion going on, what are they receiving? You know, you tried to encode the thing and what they're trying to do is decode it. What is this babbler talking about? So the person to whom the message is targeted decodes the message, trying to make sense of it. What you hope is, we skipped up to number six there, you hope, up the top, you hope they get the true meaning of John 3.16 in your explanation to them. That's what, that's what you want to get to. So they're going to get one of two things. They're going to get the true meaning of John 3.16 or say what? <laughs> so the accuracy of his decoding, the degree to which he or she understands the message, is largely going to be determined by how dense this worldview noise is. And the greater the distance between their worldview and the biblical worldview, the more dense the noise then is, is going to be. So what do you guys, what do, you, do you think that, that describes what, what ha goes on? You're trying to talk to somebody. They've got their background. They've got whatever they're bringing to the table. You've got what you're bringing to the table, an understanding of the gospel. But there's a bunch to that that whole encoding and decoding process can be difficult sometimes because you have learned a bunch of Bible words and Christian ease. So you talk in code, Christians talk in code. And, and the person may not understand. So we say, you know, you need to be saved. And what does that mean? That's a Bible word. But we use it all the time. When did you get saved? Right? 
So we have to think about the distance between where we are and where they are and try to bring them together. And part of that is, uh, yeah, not using terminology that is not understood, but also there's the, the world noise. Now, some of you guys have, may have seen this before, if I can get it up here. Let's see. See how well it comes up here. Just to show you how important communication is. This is the German Coast Guard. We're thinking, we're thinking. What are you thinking about? <laughs> 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 das hier ist mein Let's see, will I ever get past that? I don't know. Okay, so clear communication is important. Somebody's life might depend on it. They might, uh, they might sink. So we want to help believers understand. So if you look at now page 13. Helping unbelievers understand eight gospel concepts, it says at the top of page 13. As we help unbelievers to understand the gospel and we realize worldview noise exists, we must be sure we know what the gospel is. So we have seen where we're going in the next few weeks. And where we're going is to try to deal with this worldview noise, how to identify it and where somebody is. So, so we'll do that. But we want to make sure before we start even dealing with any of that that we know what the gospel is. And that's what then page 13 is, is about. So you've got these uh, eight passages listed on the left side of the, the page. Romans uh, 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, down at the bottom half of the page, you've got these key words that are involved in the gospel. So, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which one would that go with? So, sin, down on the left side of the page, you might write Romans 3.23 next to sin, and you notice the little uh, graphic there. That would be a bite out of a piece of fruit. <laughs> you guys all know what that, why that's there? Okay. All right. Very good. Now, you guys, uh, my, um, you guys see my apple there with a bite out of it? Yeah. So you guys make sure that Pastor Larry knows <laughs> that that Apple computer is pretty much advertising the fall into sin <laughs> in the Garden of Eden. And I want you to let Pastor Larry know because he's part of the Apple cult. So he's, he's and, and you think I'm kidding. Uh, I'll tell you about it sometime. So just, just make sure you tell him. Apple's advertising and celebrating sin. <laughs> Hebrews 11.6. Um, it's impossible, it says, it is impo without faith, it is impossible to please God. 
He that would come to him must believe that he is, and he's the rewarder of them who diligently seek him. So apart from faith, it is impossible to, to please God. And he that would come to him must believe that he is. So what would that go with? Could. It, uh, yeah, because it's uh, without faith it's impossible to please God. But he that would come to him, which is what we want people to do in evangelizing, must believe that he is. So it's about God. The next one, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That would be faith. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, Genesis 2, 7, it says that uh, God breathed into man the breath of life and he became a living, a living soul. So who's that about? Yeah, that's about humanity, man. And then John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus says, He who believes uh, in me, though he were dead, yet shall he Yet shall he live. So that would be which one? Though he were dead, yet shall he live. That would be uh, life. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So death, Hebrews 9.27 and then John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's uh, Christ, yeah. And then process of elimination, you got one left, right? And the cross from 1 Peter uh, 2 and verse 24. Now, those are the eight key concepts uh, that we want people to see in giving a full presentation of, of the gospel. I have said to you in the first two weeks of this that those eight could be reduced down to four, really. And those four are God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. Because you can combine some of these, like, when, like man and sin. Uh, and death, for that matter. You can have all of those under humanity because that's true for all of us. And of course, there's God. And then there's Christ, and so you've got Christ, and you've got the, uh, the cross, and then in the response, the response is to be faith, and we get life as a, a result of that. So God, man, Christ, response covers these eight, but the material here takes all eight separately, and I'm glad they do, because it gives us an opportunity then to, to, think, about, to think about all of those. And we are going to, I've got a box over here uh, under the, the bottom shelf there that uh, in a few weeks you will get a new notebook. And the new notebook is going to go through all eight, all eight of those in addition to what we're doing in this notebook. So you'll get it pounded home. And it'll, it's a, that new notebook is a study that you can go through with somebody. 
from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. And that will center on, on all of these. Yes, sir? Those are, yeah. Those are, they're, they're free if you don't mess anything up. You get your first copy for free, okay? So, so I'm going to think, yeah. So I'm going to think well of you, Eugene. And I'm going to think you're just going to get your one copy and you're going to protect it, keep it in pristine fashion. Okay. But those only cost eight bucks. So if you, if you mess it up, it's only, it's only eight bucks, okay? All right. So take a look at page 14. As we think about worldview noise, we want to think a bit about what we see in the Bible regarding worldview noise. And you do see it. Yeah. And you see it in a few passages. You see on page 14, case studies. So you've got Acts chapter 2, you've got Acts chapter 14, you've got Acts chapter 17. Bottom of page 14, in many, if not most cases, we live in pluralistic communities. So that means we live in a setting where you've got all kinds of views present. And so you have to, you're dealing with people that have these different views. And so you want to try to discern where the person is and what kind of worldview they're bringing. Mixed religious bags, so to speak. But generally, one or two religious worldviews is or are more common than others. Before taking the step in penetrating worldview noisy neighborhoods, we need to understand what these dominant religions teach. Look for examples of this as you go through the following biblical case studies and then keep it in mind later as we consider your host worldview. That is, where you're here, Trenton, Southeast Michigan. You know, what's the predominant religious worldviews? What are the prominent secular worldviews? All of, all of that. So, page 15. Here's one case study from Acts chapter 2. Verse 5. You've got the whole thing listed for you here. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. Now, that's in bold for a reason. So, you... You're, you're to see that this is in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is a Jewish city. And there are dwelling there, living there, Jews, religiously devout people. So that's who this passage now is talking about. So as we think about the baggage, the, any religious baggage, starts there. They're in Jerusalem, Jews, devout. Both Jews and proselytes... And a proselyte is somebody who is not a Jew, but they practice Judaism. So mostly Jews, but some proselytes. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and he said to them, Men of Israel. So it's in Jerusalem, it's Jews, and the nation is, is Israel. Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God. So there's who he's talking to, and then there's what he says to them. Who's he talking to? Jews. In a Jew thoroughly Jewish setting. Jerusalem. In Israel. And what does he say to these people? The first thing he says to them is, men of Israel, 
you Jewish people in this Jewish nation, Jesus, first thing that comes out of his mouth, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. And then it goes on to talk about his, his message to them. So you see the, the points in bold there. Those are the major points about their worldview and what it is that Peter, who's speaking there, does in speaking to these people with that worldview. Now turn to page 16 then. Here's Peter and the Jews at Pentecost. So Acts chapter 2, from which we just read, occurred, if you were to go back to Acts chapter 2, you would see on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And it's a Jewish festival. Peter's there. There are all these Jews that have come from all over for the annual feast of Pentecost. And he stands up to, to speak to them. And the first thing out of his mouth is Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you. Now, why does he do that? Why is the first thing out of his mouth Jesus? Because here we've been saying, and you saw the whole worldview noise and the person doesn't know what you're talking about, encode, decode, all of that, and he just goes right at it. Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, a few reasons. One, middle of the page there, you see 1 Corinthians 1.23. We preach Christ crucified, which is to the Jews a stumbling block. So Peter, a Jew himself, and it says he's there with the 11, so these are the 12 apostles, and all 12 of the apostles are all Jews too. And so he knows very well his audience. And he knows where the, the, the point of, uh, of at issue is, and it's namely in a Savior who would die. It's a stumbling block for, for Jews. So look at these four points on the left side. Knowing what you already know about Peter's audience, as well as what you read here, where do you think they were on the good soil, evangelism and discipleship scale, when Peter began? What would you say to that? Look to the right there. There's the scale, minus 12 to minus 1. Born with a God vacuum. Yep, aware of a higher power. Are these Jews aware that there's a God? Sense personal spiritual emptiness. Trying to fill a personal spiritual void. Remember, these are devout people. So they're the religiously devout people. Vulnerable to false religious beliefs. Realizes there's only one true God. So, you know, about, and I, and I didn't stop there for any particular reason, honestly. Just, but where would you, as you read through that, where would you peg about where they are. And there's some subjectivity here, okay? So it's not a... You say... Yeah. So, nine, so five there is interested in Jesus and the gospel. Minus five. Terry says. Minus eight. Down at minus eight. Now you know that they're at least minus seven because they believe in one true God. You know that. By the way, uh, you know, the Bible says that uh, you believe in God, but the devils believe that and tremble, Scripture says. 
So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, so-and-so believes in God. As if that means now they have a relationship with God. But the devils believe in, in God too. So for someone to come to repentance and, and faith, it means to place their belief, their faith, in Jesus. But yeah, they do believe, they're at least at, min at minus seven there. Um, at least that far along. And for what it's worth, and I don't have the right answer here, it, as I say, there's some subjectivity to it. So I had written down minus five. So the good news, Terry, is, here's the good news. Great minds. Great minds think alike. Here's the bad news, Terry. Weak minds also think alike. So I don't know which one we are. <laughs> but we think alike, apparently. So, um, you know, somewhere, somewhere between 7 and 5, anyway. Now, somewhere between 7 and 5 is interesting because you guys remember I told you that that chart has those shades of color in it? And you've got tilling, and you've got planting, and you've got reaping. Well, where are 7 and 5 located? They're right in the middle. They're in the planting portion. So here's, here's Peter... He, he has evaluated that. He knows these people because he, he is one of them. So he knows his own people. We've got an advantage here in being evangelists in Trenton and the surrounding area because we're natives. You know, we know the language, we know, we know the customs, and we have an idea where people are coming from. If, you go to a, if you're a missionary and you go to a foreign land. Well, now you've got to deal with all of that. You've got to bridge all of that. But here's Peter. He's like, in his setting, it's like him being in Trenton. So he, he knows where they are, and they're somewhere in the seven, six, five range. And so he doesn't have to do a whole lot of tilling, but he has to do, he has to do some planting, and that's why he goes directly at then Jesus. This is what you guys need to know. And I know this is going to be a big problem that we have a message of a, of a Messiah who was killed. Why? Why, why would, does he know that's going to be a problem? A message of a Messiah that's been killed. You know, well, so what do they have? You've got a, a Bible. A full Bible has its two major portions to it, the Old Testament and the New Testament. First part, the Old Testament. And at this point, when Peter's doing this, the New Testament's not been written yet. So all you have is the Old Testament. And these Jews, their ancestors wrote the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was preserved by them and was, was given to them. What did it say about this one who is going to come, this one called the Messiah who's going to come? What are they, what are they looking for out of that? Yes, sir? Okay. We're under Roman occupation. We hate the Romans. We got a lot of bad blood with the Romans. Hanukkah. You guys know what Hanukkah is, you know, around Christmas time, there's the Eight crazy nights, according to Adam Sandler, <laughs> uh, for, for Hanukkah. 
And uh, the reason is, is um, because in 167 BC, 167 BC, 167 years before Jesus came, on December 25th of all dates, this is the truth, December 25, 167 BC, the Jews recaptured the temple in Jerusalem from the Romans. It had been taken three years earlier by the Romans in 164 BC. So, actually I got that backwards. So in um, 167 it had been taken, 164 it was rededicated three years later. Exactly three years later, December 25th. And they had an eight-day celebration. And that's the beginning of Hanukkah. But they remember that. They tell that from generation to generation, that the Romans came in and desecrated the temple. And we're still under the boot of Rome when Jesus comes on the scene 164 years later. And as Jesus grows up, you know your New Testament starts with the birth of Jesus. And in those days, Caesar Augustus gave a decree. You guys remember that? Caesar Augustus. Well, who's that? He's the Roman emperor. He gave a decree that all the Roman world should be taxed. So they all have to go to their, their hometown of origin, their ancestors' hometown. Well, the hometown of, of Joseph is, is Bethlehem. And that's why Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Not to mention that the first part of your Bible, hundreds of years before, predicted it would be in Bethlehem. And God sets it all up for some Roman emperor to do his bidding. Isn't that beautiful? Here's Caesar Augustus saying, hey, I'm, I'm God. And that's what he said, by the way. I'm God. And I'm telling you to go to your hometown. I'll show you who's boss. They go to their hometown, but all the while he's working for God. So I've gone from teaching here to now preaching. But here's your take-home truth. Everybody works for God. Don't ever forget, everybody works for God, even people who don't know it and don't want to, including guys like Caesar Augustus. But the Jews hate the Romans. There's a lot of bad blood, a lot of history. So here's Jesus, and he's saying, I'm the one that the first part of the Bible was talking about. And they say, okay, well then let's get at it. Let's kill all the Romans. And in fact, you remember that after Jesus has lived his 33 years, died on the cross, risen from the grave, he's ready to ascend back to the Father. Acts chapter 1 says that the apostles say to him, I'm quoting now, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still wanting the, the kingdom right now, the military conquest. And Jesus says to them, it's not happening now. It'll happen later, but it's not happening now. And there's not just one coming. I'm coming again. I'm coming back. So Peter knows all this. So Peter's got to give some explanation. And part of his explanation, if you read through Acts chapter 2 and his message there, men of Israel... This man, Jesus of Nazareth, was attested to you by God by these miracles and so forth. 
I have no idea what's happening there. Ignore that screen. Okay. And he knows that they're expecting, expecting that. And so in Acts chapter 2, in his message, uh, he says to them, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Yes, he died. But he's alive. So this whole thing about the king and the restoration and all the stuff here is still, he can, he's still going to do it. How can he still do it? Because he's not dead. He died, but he's not dead. He's alive, and he is, as I speak, at the right hand of the Father so that he can and will come back and do this. All right. Number two. In what ways were these Jews an exception to the way most people groups initially appear in relation to the evangelism and discipleship scale? So we've kind of we've said they're in the middle. You can start with them in the middle. How do they differ, though, from most people groups? Well, the Jews are God's chosen people. Israel is his chosen nation. It's through the Jews and through Israel that the apostles and the Messiah, Jesus, came. Mary and Joseph are Jews themselves. Everybody is. Up until you get the gospel going out to garden variety Gentiles like you and me. It's thoroughly Jewish. So it's different in that, those respects. It's also different in that, as I said earlier, they're the ones who wrote the book. God used them to write the Old Testament. And it was given to them. It's their possession. So they have all of this knowledge of Scripture that most people don't have. That's why Peter can go straight to the planting as opposed to the tilling. Look at number three. Of the eight gospel concepts given below, you see them there again down at the bottom. Which of these did the Jews already understand fairly well from a biblical worldview? So think about that for a bit. Look at those eight going from left to right. Which ones do you think they understood fairly well given the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament? So how far to the right do you have to go before they don't really get it? So who, anybody? So go to the right, just keep going. Do they understand, you know, they, they understand God from the first part of the Bible? Did they understand man from the first part of the Bible? Did they understand sin? Death. But you get to Christ, they don't. They've got this misunderstanding about the Christ. And so Peter, Peter starts there. This is what they know. This is what they need to know. And so I start with what they need to know. So with which gospel concept does he begin? Christ. And it's because of, of what we said. All right, take a look at page 17 then. And you have another example of worldview noise, case study from the Bible itself. This is in Acts chapter 14. And this is about 
Paul and the Apostle Paul and his associates going to various cities telling people about Christ. And it says in verse 6 there that they fled to Lystra and Derbe. So just like with Jerusalem now, just like with Trenton, just like wherever you are, you want to know something about, okay, what do people in Lystra and Derby have going on? What do, they, what do they think that might affect my message here? So they're in Lystra and Derby. And if you look down at the bottom of page 17, on the left, verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes, ran in among the multitude, saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. We preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven, earth, sea, and all things that are in them. Notice their message now. The message is on creation. So it doesn't, they don't start with Christ. They go, to, they go to creation here. Now, what's the cultural background that would cause them to, to do that? Look to the right where it says cultural worldview background. Ovid, the Roman po poet, relates a legend of a previous visitation by Zeus and Hermes to this region where Lystra is, is located. And Zeus and Hermes came in human form and in, inquired at a thousand homes, but none showed them hospitality. Only a poor elderly couple took them in. The pair were rewarded by being spared when the gods flooded the valley and destroyed its inhabitants. The couple's shack was transformed into a marble-pillared, gold-roofed temple, and they became its, its priests. So here they've got this myth that goes back to these Roman gods about how things came to, came to be. And so Paul and Barnabas are going to challenge that and say God is the one who, the living God, not some idol that you've created or or any of that, he is the one who made all of these things. So that's the background to it, knowing the background, knowing where the people are coming from, then affects the emphasis that is given to them. And then we've got another one in Acts chapter 17, but alas, we will see that next week because it is uh, 8.15, okay? And next week, hopefully, I won't have any distractions with the uh, technology. Thank you guys for your patience. And we'll see you next week.